Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast presented by Zwift. Here with Benji on our Monday afternoon for the La Vuelta Ciclista a España. It's exactly not how you should pronounce it. The recap <laughs> of the entire race starting in the Netherlands. Uh, many, many moons ago, very soon after the Tour de France, and we finished in Madrid yesterday. So, Avenapol takes out the GC ahead of Mas and Ayuso rounding out the podium. We will talk about how did Remco win the Vuelta, what next for Ineos, given what they've seen from their young riders here, and also Juan Ayuso. Should he go to the Tour? What next for him at UAE after a fantastic Vuelta, as well as did we like this parkour, the way it was designed? Um, I think Benji and I might have some different views on that. So that's all to look Mm. forward to in this uh, podcast. And as I said, GC, Avenipol, first Grand Tour. He's already got the merch launched on Twitter. Life is a time trail. I think they got that fixed up. And, yep, happy for him and quick step points. Pedersen wins ahead of Wright and Maas. KOM, Carapaz wins ahead of Stannard and Maas because Vine crashed out. He looked likely to win. Avenapol wins ahead of Ayuso and Almeida, the white jersey, and teams UAE comfortably by 55 minutes on Ineos Movistar in third. And the stages were Yama Visma TT, Bennett back-to-back sprints, Roglic the punchy finish, Soler the breakaway, Vine his first win from the GC group, then Harada sprint against Wright, Vine wins on Fan Quire, uh, ahead of Remco who took time on both those days, then Menkes on Steep Prerez, Rest day, Avenapol the TT, Groves his first Grand Tour sprint win, then Carapaz became the Vuelta de Carapaz, on Peñas Blancas, then Pedersen came in. These guys dominated the last couple of weeks. He won in the sprint to Montilla, then Carapaz on Pandera, Aronsman on Nevada from the break, then Pedersen again, then Uran to the Monastery from the breakaway, Avonapol won to Pioranal ahead of Hesink, and then Pedersen, his third win in about eight days on stage 19 before Carapaz from the break again, and then Milano, the lead-out man of the century. So which stages had you forgotten, Benji? I'll put my hand up and say that I completely forgot the team time trial because it I don't know the impact it even had on the race. I don't think on the look, did it change anything in the top five? Oh, I don't think it changed that much, but it set an initial indicator, you know? It set an initial bonus for Yumbo versus the other GC competitors. So I guess there was that advantage, but that basically got negated a few days later in the in the bigger climbing stages. When it comes to stage that I forgot about, I'll be honest, I don't think this was the most memorable Grand Tour. I think the the Solaire stage in week one is probably one that won't stick in my mind for that too much rough. longer. That was indeed a rough watch. And, uh, well, good for Solaire that he wins that stage, the first Felta stage after 
think two, three years again, since the one he won last time, I'm pretty sure that he was the one before again. So anyway, like that's the kind of stage that I will forget those breakaway stages where limited stuff happens in the peloton. Those are the ones where I have difficulty following. But how about we start off with going through the Vuelta that we had and kind of figuring out how them Cuevenepool went from the start of this Vuelta and ended up in the red jersey towards the end. Because I don't think it went his way every single time. First of all, the team time trial, for example. It's a flat team time trial. Remco Evenepoel's team, quick step, losing 14 seconds on Jumbo Vismo in that time trial. Now, in hindsight, having seen the entire Grand Tour, that's nothing. But the day itself, that's a notable difference that quick step is losing towards Jumbo Visma, that Evenepoel is losing towards Roglic, for example. I believe in the first, like, three days afterwards, those sprint stage in Utrecht and so forth, like, Nobody was expecting stuff to happen in GC, I'm pretty sure. And stage four is really the day where potential other changes could occur. And that's where Roglic once again took an extra gap on Evenepoel by winning that stage. And not only that, 10 bonus seconds in total. Because, well, wait a second. No, more. 13 seconds. Because he also took that three bonus second yeah. sprint in front of Alaphilippe uh, before in the stage. So that's extra seconds that Roglic was taking on Evenepoel. At this point in the race, do you think that it's normal based on the parkour of the first full stage that Evenepoel had taken a deficit towards Roglic? I mean, 30 seconds is not, is not inconsequential. And I do think this stage four was the worst stage from quick step of the race in terms of uh, overall... They went for Alaphilippe is the answer. They went for Alaphilippe. He <laughs> did not have the shape at this point in the race. Um and I continue to be of the view that when you're going for red and when you're going against red against Roglic, who you don't know his condition, so you have to assume the worst from a quick step perspective, which is that he's really, really good. And yeah, I was, I think I said at the time, I, I didn't like the way they played it. Um, so, but because he lost time and lost the bonus sprint, I didn't think, oh, Avenipol's in bad shape, he can't win because he came 8th or 10th or whatever because unlike the other GC riders, remember Movistar, they had Rojas, Oliveira dropping Mas off at the base, of course. I mean, yeah. he did well, Mas, but that all makes a difference. So um, we'll talk about Hayter at the back end of the show when we talk about uh, the points jersey, but this was another stage where we were like, ooh, um, Positioning's a problem. So, no, I wasn't too concerned because I thought the TT would net off about 30 seconds and then the rest of the race would be equal. Like, they'd be level and I, I you know, I thought maybe Avenipol had the edge. But the next stage was that Soler stage. Nothing really happened. I did say, I did think maybe Quickstep would try something. Stage yeah. six was the huge one. Hano. we'd written this down, 12K, 6.5%. I thought... It is hard to make differences on a climb like this. I really didn't expect such big differences. Um, and I was wrong. The temperature went down to 15 degrees. And Avonapol put in a minute 20 into Sivakov, Roglic, Gagenhart, Hindley, all the GC contenders except Mars on his wheel and Ayuso about 40 seconds back. This was like crazy performance. But... I think it is worth remembering. You can't just be like, oh, great for Avonapol. You have to think what played into his favor. Easy stage the day before. Um, the temperature went down. The stage before was not that difficult. 
and yeah, it. I don't know, and maybe Robert wasn't in top shape either. But yeah, what did you like? Is this the problem you have with the parkour this stage being here? Because beforehand we wouldn't have said, "Oh, the GC will be completely ruined by this stage." No, I think I've got more overlapping like concerns when it comes to parkour. In general, I do enjoy this kind of stage being in week one. Initial, initial like gaps being there because that causes other riders that are already behind to be more aggressive in the second week, for example. That's what we might also see in the second week that we'll go through in a second. But like I've got more of an issue that it's always the same kind of climbs towards the end of stages. And I wanted like a stage where I'm like, oh, okay, this is the kind of crazy stage where I expect explosions to happen the entire stage and when i looked at this Vuelta beforehand there was no stage like that except for sierra nevada perhaps but sierra nevada is also not the climb that will have the huge explosions for example so that was my concern with the parkour but we'll go into that a bit more in depthly towards the end but when it comes to pico Hano, like even pull great performance we know that roglic was not in top form after the tour de france crash and so forth but regardless of that still a very high level performance and I'd argue he kept that up for the entirety of the first week, pretty much. I I think that if we go towards the eighth stage, we saw him get to the line together with Maz and Roglic. So there he could not make the difference necessarily. But on the line, he was the first of the three. Once again, claiming territory, basically saying, yeah, guys, you can't even beat me in the sprint to the line here. And sure, it's not for bonus seconds, but he also didn't have to go all out sprinting against Roglic there because Roglic kind of couldn't have that extra sprint towards the end of this stage. But I think the, the other big one next to Picojano is Les Prades. And it's one of those things where, I swear back in the day, Basque Country still, we still had doubts when it comes to Remco and steeper climbs where he seemed to drop off the back of those groups he was in in Basque Country on the steeper climbs and then gradually take his own tempo and crawl back to the front. But we knew at that time that his weight was higher than it was supposed to be at the Vuelta because I think him or his coach had said that in the media. So I was expecting some better stuff in there, but the differences he made on on the stage of Les Prades is significant. He finished on 134 of the winner, uh, which is Mankey's on that stage, and Moss finishes on 218. A Yuzo sprinted past everyone with a 50 kilometer per hour sprint at the top of Les Prades. Like, that's also a big one, right? And that clashes the myth of steepness. but you already felt like that was okay after Elias in San Sebastian, right? Yeah, I think I thought, oh, he's not going to do this performance on Pico Hano 6.5 for 30 and then not be able to do 6.7 or whatever he did. He did more than that, but let's say I thought the baseline GC guy would do 6.7 on Prerez for 15 minutes. Well, he's not going to... <laughs> like his curve will somehow not be worse at 15 minutes than he could do at 30 minutes just because it was 13% where it actually sometimes is easy to do higher watts on steep gradients. So I think this was extremely important, mainly because Mas was close. Mas was on 28 yeah. seconds before Prerez. And I know Remco was always going to smoke him in the TT, but Mas, I think, in another world, which didn't exist, say there was the Pandera stage or, I don't know, the Picohano stage or something in the third week in hot conditions, then 28 seconds to Mars is not comfortable. And the reason this going into so – let's go to the TT then because that's after the rest day. Avonapol's got 241, 303 on Mars. Why is this important? Well, first of all, 
For Roglic, not so much. Roglic will just, was going to try and win. He doesn't matter about the parkour, didn't matter about UCI points, didn't care about the podium. So 241 versus one minute, it's just a better buffer to have. But it wouldn't mean that Roglic would mark Rodriguez and just ruin his chances at going for first. For Mars, with the points, they openly said, Movistar, that it's extremely important. And yep. we saw Quickstep were weak. After Alaphilippe crashed out, because Alaphilippe was good on Perez, Quickstep were weak relative to what you might want in the third week on that sort of parkour. And it didn't matter because Rodriguez, Ayuso, Almeida, Lopez, Mas, because of this buffer, even if it's on, O'Connor, they all just fired each other and paced each other back. And Remco pretty much didn't have to do anything except mark uh, Mas on that 5% climb um and even if he drops there like he loses 20 seconds it, it matters doesn't matter at all but yeah i think that's that buffer was hugely important and what do you think about people always say oh he's doing too much he's doing too not to Renko, i mean people who are very very aggressive at the start of grand tours and like he'll pay for that at the end i think that's I think that's flawed logic. Like, did a, did Bernal do worse on Sega de Alla because he took lots of time on a, f- a five-minute punchy effort to Campo Felice where he dropped Yates in week one? Like, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see the data on that. I think it depends. I think there's some realism in the factor that if people spend more energy in the third week, that in the first week, that they might have less energy in the last week in general. Like, I think there is some truth in that, but I also think that it doesn't need to be a bad thing all the time. Because, for example, when Pogaccia was sprinting for no extra seconds, for no bonus seconds and so forth in the first week of the Tour, I found that a bit too much sometimes. When it comes to Remco in this first week, he didn't do that necessarily. Try and massively sprint for a position and try and make sure he gains another five seconds in every sprint at the end of a stage. He didn't necessarily do that. He wrote to the line. I think he did it once, perhaps, in week one somewhere. But... When we look at this parkour of the Vuelta, it's also different towards other Grand Tours where the third week is not necessarily the most decisive week. So making that buffer initially is super important. And especially for a rider like Remco, who might not be as confident about his third week than his first week. So wants to have that buffer beforehand. So I think for a rider like Remco in this Vuelta, it can add to the confidence of the rider and it can add to the factor that the opposing competition like you mentioned like a Mas, gets into the situation where they start thinking about the podium more than the victory before the third week and as a consequence attack less in week two and they might regret that in week three when they can't catch up with Remco anymore that kind of stuff I think it depends on the situation case by case but in this situation I feel like it's very good that Remco took that time in the first week spent a lot of energy in the first week to get that but I also feel like he didn't go crazy like I disagree with people that say he went crazy in week one and made sure that everybody uh, knew that he was going for every single second. I think he was going strong. I think he was spending energy, but nothing insane either. And I think that brings us to somewhere in week two, Peñas Blancas now. Nothing really happened too increasingly there. Mas, Evenepoel, and Roglic finished together. And I think it's really the crash that occurred afterwards right i don't know if it was on the montilla stage a stage that peterson ended up winning ahead of kokar and so forth i think it was there where remco evenepoel had his crash and that was a moment where we were like okay 
I don't know. It might have been actually on the stage before already on Peña's Blancas itself, that stage before the final climb. Yeah, it was. But it became a factor for Pondera and Sierra Nevada, perhaps. His side was packed in. I don't know if the time he lost on Pandera and so forth is because of the crash. I have no clue. I don't have the data that Quickstep has on that and so forth. It's possible that he was just having a, a few bad days as well, but I'm guessing that the crash probably had an influence. But it's also not terrible, right? Losing a minute on your worst moment in a Grand Tour because Roglic Formigal, for example, in that Velta, he still won the Velta, lost time on that day. I think... Every single Grand Tour winner has had one day probably in their Grand Tour where they lost time. Bernalon Segariala lost time, for example. Like, it's okay to have one bad day. I I think yeah, the crash was 100% the culprit. Roglic okay. didn't even do, like, his peak level. It's not like Roglic just came in, recovered after the first rest day and was smashing everybody. It Like, Aronsman dropped David Apol. And no offense to Tom yeah. and Aronsman, but that's... Even if you think Avenipol's dropped off 2%, well, then he's still going to be with Almeida and co. And Ayuso got unlucky on that stage too with the mechanical. So I think that was 100% the the crash, but who cares? Like, that's, that's his own damn fault. He crashed. It was a mistake. And crashes are the worst thing you can just about do for recovery or for winning a Grand Tour. Avoiding crashes like Pagacha does is extremely important. Um, but before we get to the back end of the race, um, all the action was kind of front-loaded. It's September, and that means indoor season is here. Zwift have just announced a raft of updates with landing soon, so there's never been a better time to join or fire up the account. Again, if you pause your subscription over summer, there's more pace partners than ever, the ability to chase your PB ghost across segments, a new race series, and even new roads all landing soon. Plus. With Swift Academy starting soon, there's never been a better time to give indoor training a shot. For more information, head to Zwift.com down below. But yeah, Sierra Nevada, I think Aiden Paul was fine, much better than Pandera. He was stronger than Roglic, Mas, uh, and Lopez. I'm not sure uh, if he was as strong as them. Maybe Mas was a little bit stronger than him because... He was just playing the numbers game. He had like three minutes on Mars. He knew if he paces, he also doesn't have any race. He has no experience of racing at that, going to that altitude. So he played it extremely conservative. He just wrote his numbers and was like, if I sit on, sit on this pace, Mars will gain minimal time. If I sit on this, Roglic can't do anything. He could have probably dropped Roglic on Hazelanas if he wanted to, I think, uh, but he didn't. So that's the... Sometimes weakness, or you look at you know the results, you're like, oh, he lost time. It's like eh, that's not actually what happened. And and when we get to the third week, there's not really too much to say other than he defended um, numerous attacks from Mars. If you have a one second advantage, and all the climbs are five percent, then you have like I don't know exactly pulling the number. Say they're doing thirty kilometers an hour, you have like a five seven percent advantage the other guy also has to get his team to pace the other guy also has to then attack and spike and you can be on the wheel particularly when mass he's not like pagatcha or roglic mass doesn't get separation from the group he has to do yep. a long attack and yeah that's basically the story of the third week just defending and <laughs> there were actually there are actually no wobbles at all and yep. that's because of roglic crashing out maybe 
if Roglic was there and Mars won two ran for the pole, could have been problems. I don't know. I don't think so either. So pretty comfortable, Benji. Um, I, I disagree with the notion that it was a weak field, particularly for a Vuelta. It had the three-time back-to-back back winner. It had, I think, eight of the ten of the Giro, including the winner, Jai Hindley. Um, it didn't have Jonas and Pog, but where early will the Vuelta have the one and two of the tour in peak shape? So I think the start list was fine. And is there anything they would be thinking they need to do differently for next year, whatever Grand Tour he does? As in Remco or? Remco Evenepoel. Remco Evenepoel. Okay, what should he do differently? Like, I think we spoke already um, about Remco Evenepoel and what Grand Tour he should do next year and so forth. That aspect of one of our previous podcast i think the stage 20 podcast had that discussion in it for people that want to hear it but adding on to that i'd i just say that it's not only remco it's also the team aspect and for me it's the decision on whether he's going to be sent to a ground tour with half a sprint train next to him with jakobs normally or that might be more of the issue than remco himself i think remco did pretty great. I think there were moments where he probably shouldn't have gone to the front of the group to start pacing, but it's not the end of the world because he's like two minutes and a half ahead, so even if he gets countered, then it's fine. So, I don't know. He played the third week really intelligently, defensive, as he probably should in the third week. Try not to get countered and so forth. I think in week one and two, you need to try and use every opportunity you have to get the gaps. Like, we spoke about Yumbo's 2020 Tour de France quite a few times on the channel before where the first two weeks they played rather defensively on chances where they could have had more time with Roglic and that was one of the things that backfired in week three for example when Roglic had his Planche de Belfia well Pogacar had his Planche de Belfia moment or they both had their Planche de Belfia moment just the opposites of the extreme anyway I think that's one aspect to it but I think they did pretty strong I think it's almost flawless this this Tour de, this Vuelta for Evenepoel? Yeah, I think he could do with Jan Hirt. I think Jan Hirt setting him up, doing a properly hard pull. Van Vilder was fine, um, but not great in the third week. He was not... Like, Asep Kous is a guy, when the GC guys are attacking, when there's eight GC guys left on that um, that Klein Mulcuera, for example, Kous will be there able to set pace just to keep it moving and Van Vilder wasn't at that level which is fine but it is good to have someone like that they will be hoping Jan Hirt can do that I thought well poles would have been a nice a nice one but it, they need someone to do that of course Alphilippe uh, crashed out I still think he can be a great domestique for Remco but that's a difficult conversation to have to be a domestique for an entirety of the Grand Tour if you're yeah. Alphilippe um, but yeah that's over to Paul. You know, can't really disagree with anything he's <laughs> with, it, with the result he won, and maybe with the merch sales they can afford some more mountain domestiques. Who knows? Anyway, Ineos Rodriguez ends up sliding down GC. He finishes in seventh. One, no, not one second. It says twelve seconds off Aronsman. He, Sivakov, had to leave the race with COVID. They both did incredible time trials in Elche. Like, couldn't believe how did they, how well they did on the flat. And 
At the same time, Carapaz sort of stole the show in the third week, three stages plus KOM, but he's leaving to EF. So the question is for them, Benji, do you, if you're Ineos, I mean, Rodriguez, obviously, he's like future GC leader. That's that's evident. I don't think him coming seventh versus fourth, like, doesn't matter relative to what I expect yeah. from him in the future. He just crashed badly. Sivakov is the question. Like, do you give him Giro leadership now with the Gagan heart? Um, is he good enough for the tour team? Like, where, what, how does the Vuelta change Ineos plans with their GC squad? I think there's a lot of questions and answers in this Vuelta and perhaps some questions that we had before the Vuelta are answered and some answers that we want are now, there's just new questions that popped up as well. And first of all, we also need to remind ourselves, next to Carapaz leaving, Bernal's trying to come back into GC mode. We have seen him be a domestique in Deutschland Tour, Denmark and so forth. We don't know what it will give when it comes to GC next year. I'm considering him like uh, a reserve for now in this discussion. I don't know what Bernal can do next year. So it's impossible to guess from my perspective. I think from your perspective as well, what he's going to offer in the GC squad of Ineos. I hope for Bernal and the team that he's able to rise up again and be the Bernal that he was before. But after an injury, you're never certain of that. We can just hope. But when it comes to the riders in this Vuelta, I think we can look at four riders here. Sivakov, Rodriguez, Hart, and also Plap. When it comes to Plap, I'll, I'll take him first, as in, I don't think he led up with the expectations that we perhaps put on him before the Vuelta. I also don't think that's that bad, because he's still super young. He's got plenty of opportunities next season to still show himself in that sense. He just also was put into a domestique role very early on in this Grand Tour and as a consequence was losing time already. Although I don't think his climbing was on point in week one anyway to have been in GC regardless of that role in the team. So he wasn't the GC prospect in this Vuelta. When it comes to the future, he can be, but he needs to show that in one week races next week, next year first, like he did in the UAE Tour, but also in like other ones next year. That's how I see that. Hope the team sees that he's got GC potential despite him not showing it in this Vuelta. Sivakov, he was not meant to be in this Vuelta, I'm pretty sure, until Burgos happened, and then he was suddenly co-leader of this Vuelta. So it's crazy how you can, so in a short term, go from not necessarily being in a Grand Tour to being the co-leader in that Grand Tour, and that, I think, shows how unsure Ineos was before this Vuelta of what their GC leaders in this Vuelta could offer. Now, I think Sivakov, proof that he's a, a top 10 GC rider in this race and that he can fight for a top five in a Grand Tour. But that's a Vuelta and a Giro for me and not necessarily a Tour de France yet. That's how I see that at least. His time trial was really good though, as in like much above what I expected his time trial to be. I know he was decent at time trial, not great, but this was an amazing time trial for Sivakov, especially on one that is that flat. And that goes the same for Carlos Rodriguez and I think Sivakov, I'm mainly thinking about if he wants to do GC leadership, then I'm mainly looking at other Grand Tours, not the Tour yet. I think uh, Carlos Rodriguez has proven more for the Tour de France, but again, the parkour matters. Or do you think that we've had Rodriguez also do a great TT, by the way? Do you think that the parkour matters between those two? Or do you think that they're similar enough in the climbs that they need? Neither are good enough. 
right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think to contest for the TDF podium. Maybe mm-hmm. that's unfair on Rodriguez, who's like, what is he, 21? So if he improves 0.05%, then he will be there. His TT, as you said, is good. Um, his handling is good, generally speaking, too. If I was them, I would uh, probably go... I'll go Rodriguez in the Bernal 2018 role in the tour. I thought he was ready for that this year as a domestique, get the experience, kind of try and backdoor a top 10 GC like anyway, Uh, but primarily as a domestique. I would go Sivakov, Gagan, Hart, Giro, uh, and go Thomas to the France leader again. Like Thomas is their best chance on a normal TDF parkour at getting on the podium. And I would also try and convince Pidcock to be a co-leader and really go for GC. That Pidcock, I think, is above all of them in, obviously, potential. Um, so I'd really just rinse and repeat, frankly. It's just yeah. there's no Carapaz, Benji, and there's no guarantee Bernal will be at Carapaz level, which was Giro favorite and came second. So I don't know. they they got to be hoping one of, like, Rodriguez or Pidcock really step up fast next year or they'll be going home again with no Grand Tour. I think another aspect that we need to mention is we don't mention Adam Yates in this discussion. He has not confirmed to be at Ineos next year. And I I feel like if I was Ineos, I would not extend him. He doesn't necessarily add too much when it comes to Grand Tour. Bases are, are we wrong in that sense? Because if an Adam Yates is at this Velta, where do you see him land in GC? Oh, it's impossible. That's it. <laughs> Adam, no one knows. No one knows. I mean, he might have... He would have been with Remco on... Um, or he would have dropped everyone and caught Carapaz on Sierra de la Pandera and then <laughs> lost 10 minutes on Sierra Nevada the next day. It's impossible. <laughs> impossible, no. I, the likelihood is Simon Yates, I think, would have done better than Adam Yates, but he had to abandon with COVID. So I don't know. Yates looked really good at Montreal. It's a one-day race, uh, and there's no news with him either. Maybe the market's a lot softer for him than he would have hoped, and also maybe Ineos thinking... Bernal's not ready to come back. I don't know. I I don't really see the spot in the Tour de France squad for Yates, so it it doesn't really make sense to re-sign him, um, in my opinion. There's also Danny Martinez, who we haven't mentioned at all. Oh, yeah. He's struggled in uh, Grand Tours. Uh, well, no, that's not true. He came fifth in the Giro, but he, he's been better in one week's. Um, They'll also be hoping he progresses. So I would like to see them preference Martinez, Rodriguez, Pidcock, and G's already there. He just podiumed the tour by six minutes. What about Ethan Hayter? He's, we may as well do the points discussion. I picked him for points jersey here. I thought he'd average second and third across all these sort of the LaGuardia stage or whatever, but he's just struggled with the positioning and then uh, he'd have COVID or something. So should he just focus on trying to be a GC rider? Because his TT is already elite. GC is, oh, it's difficult, you know, because on one end, I would have expected him to do really well in that time trial that he just DNF the DNS just before the time trial started, which really sucks. Like the timing of that COVID test was terrible for him. I think he would have bought him that time trial. I still think so. Especially after we've seen Sivakov and Rodriguez both do well in that time trial, it kind of confirms to me that the Ineos setup is quite all right during that time trial, their their skin suit and their new uh, TT bike and so forth. Now, I agree with your positioning issue. We've said it so much before in this in this podcast that 
he's got the issue that he's at the back of the peloton so much and then he needs to be able to get to the front in time for the sprint to happen which sometimes has not worked this year i don't know specifically during the Vuelta stage to be honest but i do remember that there were moments where he was trying to move to the front and then in the last sector he was kind of like pushed behind and he couldn't get past anymore and that's how he was unable to compete for certain stages but i don't know I expected better from him on the kind of stage like La Guardia, where Roglic ended up winning on stage on stage four. But again, positioning was the issue there. And I don't know, it's it's such a major issue that if he if he's able to fix it, like he wins left and right, you know? Like if he's able to fix that one issue, his bunch positioning, then he wins left and right, I think. But it's it's a real problem this year and I don't know how easy it is to fix that issue, to be honest. I think it is easier to try and turn Hayter into Roglic light, very light, than <laughs> to turn Hayter into Mads Pedersen. The aggression, okay. positioning, getting over, you know, climb. He obviously climbs very, very well for a sprinter, but he, he just does not contest the bunch sprints. And so. There are about one centimeter different in height, according to PCS. There's about probably four to five kilos between between them right now. Uh, but Thomas was heavier, and I think Thomas was or is. Thomas is about a little bit taller than Hater, and he lost that track weight. If you look at him in TDU, and his, you know how he progressively lost the weight um, from being a classics rider, so. I would just do the old school sky transformation because it's a lot easier to position yourself at the end of a 10K, 6% climb that then kind of levels off. It's a soft finish, like the stage even pole one, again, when he's overtook Hairsink. Say that's a soft finish, just it's a group of 10. It's a lot easier to position yourself against a group of guys averaging 62 kilos and you get a bit of a lead out from the front. Roglic has shown that for the last four years. And I'm not saying he's going to have the peak 20, 30, 40 minute power of Roglic. That's very, very unlikely. But in terms of world tour, one week races with a soft parkour, I'm not talking like Polonia. I'm talking like a really soft Paris-Nice where, which has a lot of TTKs and some punchy finishes. I would try and convert him into that. And I think it's easier to hide the handling or whatever as a GC rider, not always, but as a sprinter, <laughs> you cannot hide from it. Yeah, I think so as well. Now, obviously, there's plenty of other future in Ineos as well. Magnus, Sheffield, all those kind of riders, but weren't necessarily at this Vuelta. So I think we'll talk more about Ineos in our, in our preview for next season, what that team that they have for next season will also be offering. So yeah, tune in for that somewhere towards the end of this year or at the start of next year, roughly. But I think that's about it for our Ineos discussion here at this Vuelta. I think we covered most of the points that we want to cover. But I also want to bring up UAE, a team that is here with two riders in the top 10. I don't know if they will both be equally happy about their positions. I, I'd argue they probably will, although the consequences of those positions might be more for the other than the one that got lower, for example. Juan Ayuso getting third in this Vuelta. Almeida getting fifth in this Vuelta. I would argue that if Roglic finishes this, then they're fourth and sixth. But again, Roglic crashed, so that is not the case. Third and fifth is a wonderful result for Ayuso mainly. That's like, it's insane, you know. This guy is 19, 
He's similarly built as Pogacar. He goes to his first Vuelta like Pogacar. Pogacar in his first year at UAE, he was doing the likes of, I think, California, where he had a pretty strong result. I don't know if he won our podium that race, but he built further. Algarve was really good for Pogacar that year. He built on that race by race and then did the Vuelta with, I think they called Aru leader, just like they did the year afterwards for the Tour de France. And in the shadow of Aru, that Vuelta, it was Pogacar building up and building up and not necessarily in week one showing his hand, but slowly but surely being better and better and overall winning three stages and finishing on the podium. Now, that's, I think, a year older than what Ayuso is right now. Ayuso did not win three stages. I don't think that the way the race played out was in favor of him winning stage in the first place. So I don't necessarily blame him too much for that aspect. Are you okay with that? Like, is it his fault? No, 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 no. It's not his fault. He's very, very fast. He, you see winning sprint in La Guelia. He's been winning sprints all year. He's very, very fast. Um, very quite punchy too, but like won the sprint. I know it wasn't against the best competition, but a circuito de Gecho before. I think his flat sprint is actually maybe even better than his actual punch. Um, but yeah, the, he should have won stage 20 if UAE, maybe they couldn't have, but if they went all in on Ayuso stage win, I believe he wins that stage, um, or has a very good chance of winning it. And I think he can win a lot of races next year. Now he was sick around the time of the TT. That was a little bit below what I expected. So that could be the reason I think I'll may, so Ayuso is all positive. It's all, you know, I, you know, he's the chosen one. (laughs) <laughs> I call him the chosen one, <laughs> and he can win a lot of races with that punch. And the TT we expect to improve. Almeida is just much of the same, like slow start, sort of positioning is terrible. Um, the descending, I'm not sure about, and just works his way into the race and gets progressively better and better and better, and ends up finishing fifth. So he literally, you look at his GC results throughout the race, he goes like 10, 8, 7, 6, 7, 6, 5. Um, <laughs> but I just, I think when you have Ayuso and Pagacha, you're not trying to come fifth in Grand Tours. At least I don't think you should be trying to come fifth. You should be trying to win Grand Tours. Um, and it's the Vuelta, so you're trying it out. And I'm I'm not saying Almeida performed badly, but yeah, he just... He, it's just tough for him with Ayuso and Pagacha. Like I, I don't think he, I don't think the co-leadership really works either. To be honest, like I do think it would be better for Ayuso in terms of winning stages, bonus seconds, if you had Almeida a hundred percent pacing for him all the time. It didn't matter here because Ayuso wasn't winning anyway, so it, it didn't matter. But I think going like, what do you think? Do you think going forward, when they recalibrate in the off season, they slot him into a domestique role, or is it just Pagacha's TDF leader, Pagacha's leader of whatever race he does, and all the other races, it's still a free for all? I'll be honest, I find it really difficult because if Almeida does not have his COVID in the last two days of the Giro, last three days of the Giro, he stopped fiving two Grand Tours in one year, which is a really good result GC-wise. So he's a really strong GC, leader that a lot of teams would want in their team. But his issue is that two other leaders in his team have performed better this year. Pogacar at the Tour and Ayuso at the Vuelta. There was none other guy at the Giro, so nobody could 
be better than him at the Giro. We don't know if that would have happened if he had an RGC leader next to him. But overall, in three ground tours, he gets beaten by uh, two better results by GC riders in his team. And I think from UAE's standpoint, Ayuso and Pogacar have shown to be more talented. And Ayuso already in this short time span, which means that there's likely more growth coming for an Ayuso in a similar fashion that a Pogacar had after his Velta top three, for example. I expect Ayuso to grow more and indeed be a Grand Tour potential winner fighting for Grand Tour victories in the coming few years. Perhaps next year already, we don't know that. Depends on whether he grows from here on towards next year already. In that situation, when you're UAE, you start thinking about, okay, sorry Almeida, but you're on paper the third in the list of our GC leaders. And if we send Pogacar and Ayuso to the Tour and we also send you, then you're domestique. If we send Ayuso to the Vuelta or the Giro, then Almeida can start as a co-leader at that race. And in the first week, they can ride next to each other and then fold into a domestique role, the one that is doing worse in week two in a similar fashion that we would expect other teams with duo leaders to do so in a Grand Tour. Because in a Giro Vuelta... I'd argue it's useful to have a secondary leader, especially in a time where COVID can take out GC leaders left and right. So I don't have that issue there. I still think he should be a Grand Tour leader in at least one Grand Tour as a co-leader to someone else. But I agree that Ayuso and Pogaccio are the ones that can win Grand Tours, while Almeida has not proven that he can podium one yet. Although I still believe he can podium a Grand Tour 100%. I just think that He's been a bit unlucky at the Giro. I don't think he would have podiumed regardless of having done that time trial and actually finishing that Giro. He would have gotten forward most likely. But it's only like a matter of a few seconds. Eh? If Landa has a bit worse of a day and Almeida has a bit better of a day in that Giro and they both finish that Giro, then Almeida probably does better in that time trial and passes Landa in the time trial, that kind of stuff. So he's... Oh, it's, it's, it's so limited. Like, what, sorry? I think he can win the Giro. Because he has, he has good TT, good punch, pretty good to altitude, is he? Or no, is that a weakness? I'm not sure. Um, he's really good on steep gradients, blockhouse. I thought he was going to win that stage in the Giro. Um, maybe he would if it was the third week. His recovery and endurance throughout Grand Tours is excellent. Um, and I think he has very quite fixable problems, actually. Yep. And he wastes so much energy in stages where and it's like you see him coming back and then he finishes 10 seconds behind but the reality is like maybe he had the legs to gain time and you don't see the fact that he didn't gain time when he had the legs to do it if he played things differently and what i'm talking about is on certain parkour and i'm not a 10k 10 percent climb the way almeida paces is good yeah generally speaking um you just do your best, you set your power, you do your power. But on these Basque stages or on these irregular gradients, like a Pico Hano, where it's 7% for 4Ks, flat for 2Ks, 7% for 4Ks, or Sierra Nevada, where it's 11% for 4Ks and then literally flat for 5 kilometers and then goes up to 5%, I, I think his pay, the way he paces is not always efficient. And also, it's not just that. It's on the tricky sort of stages. He he really struggles uh, for positioning. And whether that's awareness or handling, I'm not sure which one it is. If it's just awareness, and then maybe you can fix it a bit easier. So 
the Tour de France is going to be really tough for him because, like, the fighting for positioning is just it's on another level to races like the Vuelta or the Giro usually. So, still, uh, I would think a hugely positive uh, Vuelta for UAE with third, fifth, and a stage with Soler and teams. So. They're going to be pretty pleased. Uh, just quickly, Pedersen outperformed my expectations. I I don't know why I glossed over him so much, but three stages is an yeah. excellent return. Uh, Trek put up a pretty funny tweet or video of him on the bus for the second one, um, which is like really inspirational stuff um, where he was basically telling them, the guys on the bus, I will win this stage if you, <laughs> if you deliver me. But the overall rating of the world to Benji, how would you rate it out of 10 and what would you change about it? I'll be honest, it is not the Grand Tour I will remember for the rest of my life. Like the one aspect that I will remember is the likes of Remco Evenepoel. As a Belgian, I will remember that he won the Vuelta here. As a cycling fan, I'll remember that he won the Vuelta here, the start of potentially a, uh, a series of Grand Tours that he will compete for in the future, which is a very awesome thing. Like I love seeing riders go from... The youngsters that we see as talented, like Carlos Rodriguez back in the day, like Anuso back in the day, and the juniors, like Remco Evenepoel in the juniors, Kian Eitbrooks in the juniors, those riders are like following those careers from the start and then seeing them gradually improve, gradually improve, and gradually get more results. Remco Evenepoel getting his Vuelta is probably the most memorable part of this Grand Tour, knowing that it might be the start of more when it comes to Grand Tour business. I can't wrap my head around the fact, I think Cycling Clown on Twitter posted this, that he needed to win a Grand Tour for people to that were like saying, oh, he's not a GC rider, to stop saying he's not a GC rider. He had to win a Grand Tour for that to change. It's, it's crazy because with riders that come 15 Grand Tour already like, okay, he's a GC rider. And for Remco, it took way more because he's got this polarizing audience that's the memorable part is him proving his haters wrong in this vuelta for me when it comes to the stage itself i won't remember most of the stage i won't be honest i'll be honest like it's it's not the most memorable ground i think one of the most memorable stages is probably because it was such a a misery stage the one where roglic crashed raven and pool had his puncture that kind of stuff is memorable what's like what's what's your memorable stages here are there ones where you're like oh next year um Will you rewatch that next year in the evening? Pico Hanno, yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> As a Watts Bikilo nerd, mm-hmm. understanding what that performance was from both him and Vine, I'll remember that forever. That's just crazy performance. To put a yep. minute 30, uh, still just a minute 30 on that climb in the first week, the first mountain stage of a Grand Tour, just crazy. Um doing performances we haven't seen in the on a pure was peculiar basis uh, Jonas on Altacam and Granat is better by when you factor in altitude heat difficulty of stage but yeah, yeah. Pico Hanna was very very impressive uh what I would change about the race not too much actually I think the riders mm. tried to make the best of it what I would change is to have the stage 20 or stage what was the soft one that must attacked a lot of times i would just have one of the stages no stage 18 Piornal. one of those two's got to be way harder and i i don't mean frequency of climbs i mean gradient of climbs Piornal, if it was 13 k's eight percent descent 13 k's eight percent I would have been happy with the third week. My, maybe Mars dropped Remco. 
and then I would have made stage 20 just a little bit harder. I would have put a rampas. There surely must have been a rampas in the area somewhere to <laughs> spice it up. That's what I would have changed. It was just, it was so soft that third week. I think it's also in the details. I agree with you that it's like we've got these medium mountain stages like the stage 20. And it's not that I want the last climb to be steeper. I want like the second last or third last climb to be steeper. And I like those things being steeper because it is a launching pad for GC riders to move earlier in the stage. And we've seen that in last year's edition on stage 20. There were some steeper sections in those climbs that allowed for launching your riders. We see that in oh, the last stage of Basque Country every single year now. That stage can and have explosions because it has that really steep section in the middle of the stage already. And the climbs before are also notable enough to have multiple attacks and it allows for satellite riders to be up the road and so forth. Those stages make Grand Tours for me and I feel like those stages were the ones that were a bit too weak. But I think it's also because of the way the race went. I think let's say, let's say Yumbo doesn't lose any riders and let's say Quickstep doesn't lose any riders. Quickstep might still be strong enough to control. We don't know that. But Yumbo might have more opportunities to send riders ahead and benefit from that. Uh, that kind of stuff. Because teams were half decapitated towards the end of this Grand Tour. And knowing that, they have less tactical stuff to do on these medium mountain stages. Do you think that played into how relatively easy Quickstep was able to control this last week? Uh, I think that was just the drafting and the other top 10 GC guys just attacking each other. And that meant that Remco was able to follow in the draft when he needed to or just set pace at the end of climbs. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he just, he, it just was too soft. And I'll, I'll pick up what Benji mentioned about Basque Country because if you look at the two profiles, the average gradients don't look too different. But for example, the, the third last climb uh, on the last stage where Martinez won GC, 40Ks from the finish, it crests is Crabalin. That's very, very <laughs> difficult. 4.1 Ks, 10.5%, but there's like 500 meter section of 15%. It finished at 12% last 600 meters. Nasty climb. And there's a sense of technical as well. And then there's a short, medium mountain climb of no consequence really afterwards. But then the final climb to Arate, again, you're looking at it, 4.6 Ks, 8.5%. That's still harder than what we have for any of the finishes here. This is the finish to Arate, but it's 3 Ks at 10% in the middle of that. So these are where guys' legs, you can get separation and deny the draft benefit or put guys really over the limit who are trying to follow. Like Mas was so good on that stage before he crashed. So that's what we were missing in this third week. I don't think it made the race better having it so soft, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think many people will remember this third week at all for anything that happened except the Rollage crash, as you mentioned. Um, but that was our Vuelta recap. Uh, Remco takes it out. Enric Maas, we've glossed over a little bit, and my apologies to him. I will say to come from the tour of COVID, saying he had a fear of descending, to come second, to take 140 or so extra points, 160 extra points from third in KOM, third in points, and four stage podiums, and he was unlucky not to win one, actually. Um yeah, he, a lot of Movistar fans owe him some some gratitude, I think, for virtually saving them. They have like a 1% chance of being relegated now, according to Roll's model in today's article. Uh, but that's all from us. I'm going back to Australia in a couple of days. I don't know where Benji's off to. Maybe there's like some public holidays in Belgium now. 
um, <laughs> after the Vuelta. Um, I'm going to the UK. Perfect time to go to the UK. Let's hope I am able to get to the UK. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Have they shut the channel the down? I don't, I don't know, know what's going on. They shut the Tour of Britain down, which helped Movistar. Anyway, that's all from us. We'll have World Champs preview content rolling out very soon, so I'm sure you'll look forward to that, and we'll see you probably mid to late this week. Ciao.